Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, what can we expect from the Ontario budget? Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger clarifies his comments from the annual Chamber of Commerce Mayor's Breakfast. Hamilton City Council will not be looking at allowing parking in bike lanes. And WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is in handcuffs and behind bars. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get right into the budget stuff. Uh, We want to find out exactly how this government is going to be spending our money. Uh, You know, the government's been in place since uh, June of last year when Rob Ford was elected. This is their first full budget. And a lot of speculation about what may or may not be in there. Joining us to talk about that, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Hi, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. Don't want to start you off with a correction, but it's Doug Ford who was elected, not Rob. Oh, my mistake. My mistake. <laughs> uh, that changes everything then. It does. <laughs> uh, what should we expect today? I mean, th- there's an awful lot of concern here that this is going to be slash and burn, and this is, you know, they're going to slash, the- cut this off, and not going to get funding for this anymore. Uh, there's going to be, you know, Know, this, the Dickinsonian attitude to what may be happening here. Are we worried about mu- too much about nothing here? I don't. I don't think so. But for this reason, Bill, last June when when Doug Ford was elected, he was elected without really putting forward a platform. This is quite unusual. Both the Liberals and the NDP said, "Elect me, and I'm going to do this and that and something else, and launch this and that and something else." And all that Doug Ford said to everyone was, "Elect me, and I'm going to try to balance the budget." And uh, he was elected in part because of that, and also in part because he wasn't the Liberals. So many people had gotten tired of them. Uh, I thought we were going to get a hint of what the Doug Ford agenda would look like last fall when they did their midterm economic update, but they really didn't do all that much at that time. So this is their first big chance to take the reins of government and, and go from there. To give you a little context, if you don't mind, um, Ontario takes in about $150 billion of revenue. 150, that's with a B, $150 billion of revenue. And last year, when the Liberals brought down a budget, they were not balanced. They were running a deficit of around $11, 12000000000 billion. So that means about an 8% gap between what they took in and what they spent. They were spending more than they took in. Uh, there are two ways to close that gap, if this is what Doug Ford is going to do to balance the books. One is to generate more revenue, and that will normally happen just thanks to inflation. You know, everyone gets a little raise periodically at their work site. Well, as soon as you get a raise, the government gets more money, and that typically is about 1% to 1.5% more money. And so then how do you close the other 6.5%? Well, then you've got to do something on the spending side. We've had some warning prior to this uh, date uh, that the, one of the ways he's going to do it is what he calls efficiencies. He's going to find efficiencies. Uh, some of those efficiencies we've heard about in the education sector that as teachers retire, they're not going to be replaced. And in fact, over roughly a four-year period, they're hoping to save nearly a billion dollars in the education budget by not replacing roughly 3,200 teachers. Now, that's good or bad, depending upon your perspective, but that's only one sector. Uh, if you're going to truly save $6.5 billion or so, <coughs> excuse me, you're going to have to do something with health care. You're going to have to do something with universities and colleges and some of the other big spending spots. And that's what's got us a little bit on, on tenterhooks today as we're waiting for this. How fast is he going to try to balance the books? If he tries to do it in one year, expect slashing and burning. If he's content to say, no, as long as I bring down the deficit by a billion or two every year over four years and you can see me moving towards balance, 
then it'll be a calmer, gentler kind of cutting we see today. But I think we'll still see cutting. I, I think one of the things that's causing a great deal of angst, though, is that those two areas that you, you just talked about, uh, education and health care, usually were things that governments would tend not to want to do too deeply, cut too deeply, because they were kind of sacrosanct. And uh, that doesn't seem to be the case with this government. Well, again, here's your challenge. If you've been elected on a, a platform of balancing the books, number one spending in the province, uh, uh, something like 43 cents out of every dollar it takes in is health care, and right behind it is education. Those are number one and number two. Uh, a distant fourth, a distant fourth is actually servicing the debt that you've accumulated, and everyone gets upset about that. It's about $12 billion a year. But the first two together are over $100 billion in spending. So there's no way I think you can balance these books if you don't do something with that spending. And the question is, how fast does he try to do this? What's he going to try to do? Now, you know he's done some other things in the last little while to create efficiency. So we heard a few months ago, or maybe a month and a half ago, they were merging all these different health care agencies into one super agency and, of course, eliminating eliminating some positions in there. Uh, you heard them uh, in the fall. They were eliminating some of these commissioners. One was the environmental commissioner. There was a, another one on uh, uh, child care. So, uh, you know, he's done some of those kinds of things, but all of those savings are relatively minuscule if you need $8 billion in savings. And that's really the question that we're sitting on here. And finally, Bill, let me also say, I think along with some of these big announcements, he's going to throw in some little tiny almost nonsensical announcements, but things that people can get their mind around to almost act, if you will, as a diversion. You've heard those as well. We're going to change the license plate slogan, both for uh, 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 residential vehicles and commercial vehicles. Uh, we're going to uh, change the logo for the province of Ontario. These amount to nothing other than a nice distraction. And if you've got bad news, Sometimes the distractions help you sell the bad news. Sure, and, and if you throw numbers around, I mean, it's it's easy to massage numbers here, uh, but there's already been some analysis on that. I mean, you talked about, uh, for instance, there's a tax cut for the, the lowest uh, income tax bracket here, uh, but the analysis has already been done on that, and apparently that's not going to pay people any better off than they were before. That Raising the minimum wage would have been better. Uh, and that wouldn't have cost them anything. I mean, that's obviously something the businesses would be harping about. But uh, it's it's really just a matter of saying, hey, we're really doing something for you here. But there's only a small segment of the population are going to benefit from that. That's why I guess the analysis is so important here instead of just looking at some of the big numbers. Well, and as well, you know, uh, at the same time that Doug Ford was doing something, he, remember, again, along with balancing the budget, his, his other uh, promise, if you will, was, folks, I'm going to put more money back in your pocket. So he, he's come up with this tax cut for the poorest. Uh, and that's going to generate roughly or save them roughly $410. A minimum wage increase would have actually given them $810, but you're right, it wouldn't have come out of their pockets. But I think while he's doing all that, and we're all studying that, he's also reduced the rates for the highest income earners, going to put significantly more money in their pockets, money they don't necessarily need to have. But if I'm trying to get reelected, it's always nice to give my friends a little something along the way. Yeah, because we've talked about this, and you and I have talked about this, of course, about what's going on with the brackets. And I, I guess the thing that, that frustrates an awful lot of people, and economists for that matter, too, is that the tax break for the lowest income is only going to have an impact on about 37% of that tax bracket. Uh, the rest of them don't even qualify for it. So, uh, you know, he gives one hand, takes away with the other. But that's that's typical of governments during budget time. That is typical of governments. That's, that's pretty much the way they do it. It's uh, And we've... You know, it's it's hey, look at this over here. What I got for you here? Don't 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 mind what's going on over there. Never mind that. That's that's not really that important, but it is really. 
Uh, so you have to look at this really holistically to see what kind of an impact it's going to have on us on our everyday lives. Right. To give you another example of smoke and mirrors, uh, there's a little battle going on between Queen's Park and Ottawa, so to speak. Certainly you've heard this on the carbon tax question. Now, when Doug Ford was elected, he promised that he was going to do something around gasoline prices. And, of course, the first step was to cancel the cap-and-trade, and that saved us roughly $0.04 cents a litre. That $0.04 cents a litre now is gone, now that we've substituted the carbon tax for the cap-and-trade. But he actually promised to reduce gasoline prices by $0.10 cents a litre. The first $0.04 cents was going to come from uh, the cap-and-trade, but then the other $0.06 cents were going to come from reducing the Ontario uh, tax at the pump. I'm curious to see if he follows through on that promise, or even if he phases it in over the four years. So, if, for instance, he might say, ultimately, I'm going to save you another six cents. This year it's one and a half cents, and I'm going to do another one and a half cents the year after. Uh, I suspect we may hear something like that, and he's going to do that to contrast. You know, Here I am trying to help you at the pumps. Justin comes along, and he's trying to harm you at the pumps. He, he's really trying to set up this dichotomy because he's also trying to help his friend, if you will, or partner, Andrew Shear get elected this fall. Let me ask you about that, because there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on on social media about this gas price and, and what they might do and the tax impact, and et cetera, et cetera. As, as you mentioned, when he killed the cap-and-trade program, uh, that eliminated about $0.04 cents, uh, per litre out of the price of gasoline. And, and of course, he took credit for that, because you know, that's the name. But now that the the, the, the other ca- tax has gone in here, the carbon tax has gone in on this, uh, and uh, they, he's talking about it's going up about $0.11 cents per litre, but that's over about a four-year period, isn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. So remember how the carbon tax is supposed to work. At this moment, in 2019, the federal carbon tax is $20 per ton of carbon dioxide released. But it doesn't stop there. It starts there. And the idea is that while that's a little bit of pain for you, it's not really going to be enough pain maybe to change your behavior. So the federal plan is to take it from $20 this year to 30 next year to 40 the year after that and 50 the year after that. So if $20 equals $0.04 a litre, $40 $40 equals 8 and ultimately when you get to 50 you're going to be at 10, 10 and a half cents a liter of uh, increased cost at the pumps, hoping that that is enough to get you to change some of your behavior. So when he's um, complaining about this and wants to put stickers, he wants to have mandatory stickers on all the pumps explaining this to you, and I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think people need to understand the impact of these programs. But at the same time, I wouldn't mind him putting a sticker on to explain how much of that gas price that you're paying goes to the province and how much of that goes to the federal government. I think you would actually be surprised to see just how much goes to the province. It's a little bit of crocodile tears blaming Justin for the problems because the province actually gets a bigger share of that revenue than the federal government does. Well, exactly, and that that's not going to be on the sticker, unfortunately. No. The other element to this, too, though, had he not touched cap-and-trade, Marvin, uh, and the gasoline prices were what they were, uh, there wouldn't be any carbon tax because we wouldn't be a part of that program. Right, and yet, funny, here's the other thing, Bill. If you just did your income taxes for 2018 and you completed Schedule 14, you got a, a green energy credit or something to that effect. Uh, I got $154. I wouldn't be getting $154 from the federal government if it wasn't for Doug Ford. So in a way, I have him to thank for canceling cap-and-trade because I got a little something on my income tax. But yes, you're absolutely right. This federal carbon tax only affected Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and New Brunswick because the other six provinces had a plan in place to do something about carbon. Doug's plan, and he did unveil a plan last fall, or his energy um, 
minister did or environmental minister did, but it, it isn't really much of a plan at all, and that's why we're stuck with the carbon tax. He got rid of one and didn't have a replacement. When we talk about cause and effect here, and I, you touched on this the day they made this announcement, but I want to talk a little bit about the, the tuition uh, decrease that he came out with a little while ago uh, and the pushback from universities and, frankly, from student associations at the same time. Uh, that generally is going to mean less revenue for universities, colleges, etc. How's, how's that going to have a long-term impact on, on those institutions? Well, uh, you know, it, it's a significant question. Uh, what's happened with the government over time was that they said, look, there's less money that we can put into the pot for education. So, okay, universities, if we can't keep you um, on the leading edge with our funding, we're going to allow you to increase tuitions. Now, that wasn't an unlimited increase. They put a cap on how much it could go up, normally at roughly the rate of inflation, so you could increase tuition by 2%, maybe uh, maybe 2.5%. And what uh, Ford came along and said was, I, I have a way to help make education more affordable. I'm not only going to uh, put the cap at zero, you can't raise tuition, but I'm going to have you roll back tuition on any program that, that we fund. Now, the uh, university said, okay, that's fine, uh, you're going to roll it back, and of course you're going to make up for the shortfall of revenue, aren't you? He said, no, 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 you just have to deal with less revenue. At McMaster, we offer some educational programs which are fully funded, meaning that uh, the cost of tuition covers the entire cost of offering that program. This is often at the graduate level or at some other senior levels. But most basic undergraduate education is still subsidized by the provincial government, something to the tune of around 35%. And so what they've done there is they said, we're not going to give you more operating dollars and we're going to cut the revenue you get from tuition. What we believe is going to happen at McMaster, I say we meaning the faculty, is that we're going to see increased class sizes, and that seems to be a common refrain around the province. Really, all you have to do is pack more students into the same room to try to make everything work out. Uh, and obviously, those are some of the other implications that we'll talk about, which is why the analysis is going to be so important in this. Uh, and and we're speculating, but this is this is kind of unusual. I got about a minute left here because uh, I can remember the days, Marvin, where the, you know there's there was total secrecy about the budget uh, because they were concerned about what the impact it was going to have on markets, and you know, so I mean, people lost their jobs if there were budget leaks <laughs> yeah, in the past. Exactly. Uh, they've told us half of this stuff already. Well, I think what I'll call it is floating balloons. They floated balloons to see what might resonate with people and what might be harder to sell to people. So obviously the changes to education, which led to a protest in Queen's Park last week, that one's a harder to sell, so they know they've got to marshal their forces. There may have been other things they have launched or, or floated up there and got no reaction at all. They said, oh, okay, so they know how to spin this. And, and I think for Doug Ford, this is the other part of it. Not only is this his first budget, but now he's got to sell this first budget to all those people who elected him. I'm already seeing letters to the editor of people saying, well, I didn't know that's what he was going to do, so I'm not going to vote for the man again. Well, that's, that's not good if I'm the party in power. So I've got to go out and sell my budget to people, sell my vision to people. And I think that's why he's floated some of the balloons. But I also think he's got a few left in reserve, and probably they are some of the biggest balloons and maybe some of the hardest to sell. We'll be surprised at 4 o'clock today. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for this today. Glad to be here, Bill. Okay, we'll talk again soon. By the way, tomorrow... The day after uh, the budget is released, uh, Finance Minister Vic Fidelli will join us here on the Bill Kelly Show. I think it's just after 9 o'clock. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday was uh, the Chamber of Commerce, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce annual Mayor's Breakfast uh, down at Leona Station. Uh, always a highlight. Uh, some of the, uh, the folks, city councilors, of course, and business leaders are always down there to see what the mayor has to say, the state of the city, so to speak. 
Uh, and there's a Q&A in there, too. Uh, I, I guess for some people, the takeaway here is apparently the mayor doesn't mind uh, mobsters shooting at each other. I think there's a little more substance to, uh, to that than, than some people might think, though, and some of the other stuff that was discussed. So we wanted to bring the mayor on to talk about uh, some of the other initiatives and some of the other things uh, that uh, are going on and some of the, the ideas that the mayor had, too. So uh, we welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger back to the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing today? Good, Bill. Thank you. Uh, I'll let you clear that that comment up that you made uh, <laughs> rather offhanded too, which uh, seemed to be the headline of yesterday. I think there's a little more to it, but talk about that first. Well, you know, the the question was, uh, you know, are, are you concerned about uh, gun violence in the city of Hamilton? And of course, the answer is an absolute yes. Uh, you know, I've said many, many, many times that uh, the uh, that we ought to be banning guns in the inner city. There's absolutely no reason for people to have guns when they're in the city unless you're, you know, intent on uh, on harming someone somehow. And so uh, that was that was also part of the conversation I had with Mr. Dreschel afterwards. Uh, but obviously, I did say that uh, you know if people kept it at uh, you know criminal to criminal kind of crime, which is essentially what's happening. Uh, so gang gang violence, you know, either drug related or whatever, uh, seems to be targeted. Uh, you know, incidences. I don't want it to happen. Uh, worry about collateral damage. Uh, but I did make that comment, and uh, I, I would say I probably regret it. Uh, didn't intend to to advocate for you know criminals shooting at criminals. I don't want anybody shooting at anybody. Uh, but uh, that was that became the headline, and uh, you know so be it. Uh, it was a great uh, it was a great session overall. Uh, yesterday it was a good opportunity. Lisa Hepner of uh, CH uh, was the moderator, and we we got to you know delve into some you know important development topics and. Uh, I did get to, uh, and you're going to ask me about this, the Order of Hamilton, talking about yeah. uh, acknowledging, uh, you know, great, hardworking, unpaid volunteers in our community that uh, that are doing great things, and no one ever knows about them. So we're going to recognize them, uh, you know, into the future. But, is, is this, uh, is this going to be is this going to be an annual thing then? The 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 yes. the, 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 Hamilton, yeah. the award ceremony. The award ceremony would be an annual thing. Uh, we we would intend to uh, to hand out an award uh, at the, uh, the beginning of the new year at the mayor's levy. Uh, there'd be about 10, uh, maximum of about 10 uh, handed out each and every year. And it'd, be, it'd be a lovely, nice, uh, you know, acknowledgement of the work that they're doing. And uh, what, what would go with that, of course, is recognition by the city and a, and a nice pin to, uh, to uh, recognize their achievements in our community. You know, and I'm thinking about the unsung heroes out there, the, uh, the coaches that uh, volunteer and, you know, do it for 30 years and have made such a difference in, in some kids' lives out in the community, or the hospital volunteer that has been doing it for decades and doing it just for the, the, the betterment of the community, or people that are working in neighborhoods, uh, helping to improve or, or, or you know, mentoring, uh, you know, others in the neighborhood just because they care about where they live and how the uh, how the uh, the neighborhood continues to uh, to improve. I think there's all kinds of examples of unsung heroes out there, and uh, I want to take the time to recognize them and tell their story in, in the broader community, and and you know promote the notion of volunteerism is a is a good thing to do. And there's lots of benefits to be had out of that, and uh, some some simple recognition uh, from the city of Hamilton to honor them, I think, would be a good thing to do. Well, I just remember a stat from a couple of years ago, which I, I assume is still relevant because I haven't heard anything to the contrary, that on a per capita basis, Hamilton has more volunteers in our population than any other city in the country. And, and that doesn't surprise me. No, and uh, that, that's been a kind of an ongoing statistic for, you know, as long as I've been here, quite frankly. And, that, and that's, that's a testament to the quality of the people we have and the caring, compassionate uh, view they have of our city. And 
And you know what? I, I don't think our city would function. Uh, you know, the hospital system, uh, you know, functions on volunteers. Uh, you know, there's armies of people working, uh, you know, on a voluntary basis, uh, helping out with, uh, you know, delivering people to from the OR to the to the you know, room downstairs. I mean, uh, to to greeters, to people that go room to room, and and uh, you know, provide uh, you know snacks and uh, and magazines to help make their stay more comfortable. And then, and then we have you know the ongoing sports volunteers, and you you know you, you you've met many of them uh, over the years. They're uh, you know dedicated, hardworking, unpaid, just doing it because they care about uh, kids in our community, giving them a good opportunity to learn some life lessons, and uh, and participate in sports. I mean, there's a whole array of examples of you know that kind of dedication that uh, we should take the time to uh, to recognize. But Hamilton. Uh, you know, all of those levels wouldn't function without the volunteers that are working out there. And uh, just on the advent of Volunteer Week, we thought it was an appropriate time to uh, to designate a, a, a particular Hamilton, City of Hamilton, uh, award that uh, would recognize all of their contributions. Well, there's one other element that came up, and we should, by the way, remind our listeners that it's not as if the, the, you you know had talking points and said, I want to get this message out here. You actually, a lot of this is just responding to questions that were coming from the audience there. But one right. of them was about about the, the power of the mayor, the strong mayor system, yeah. uh, as opposed yeah. to what we have. Now, this is not the first time this has come up, of course. It's been discussed here for the longest time. It was a main part, topic of discussion back around the amalgamation. If we were going to retool the city, should we do mm-hmm. this? Uh, Toronto has a different system than we do. The mayor has uh, can do a lot more, a lot more power there. In some cases, they even have a veto. Uh, and, and somebody asked you about that yesterday. And you, you're obviously, it's going to maybe to some people sound self-serving, but you just think there's some benefits to having a mayoral system like that. Well, I mean, and, and you know, it's not about myself. I mean, it's about the position and and you know what uh, what what authority in, in our current system does the mayor have when, uh, for instance, he wins an election, puts on a platform. You know, thousands of people uh, vote for for the platform. Uh, you, you're successful at it. Surely, there ought to be a mechanism to to uh, to allow for that that platform to be delivered. Uh, you know, in the way that the mayor put it up. So, you know, the last uh, last example would be uh, you know the seventy thousand votes that I received. Uh, you know, during the last election, I don't take it personally. I think people were talking about. The, the messaging, uh, the things that we were talking about, whether it's LRT or economic development or housing issues, uh, we, all of those we put on uh, on our platform piece. And, uh, you know, people obviously responded to that. How then does the mayor get the uh, the opportunity to actually put that into effect? And so, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in other places uh, in the world and, you know, specifically in the United States, there is, uh, even though it's a two-party system, and I mean, it's a wholly different scenario, but... There are there are certain powers given to the mayor that gets elected at large to uh, to enact their uh, their agenda, and I think that's not a that's not a foreign idea. Uh, there, there's always been questions of uh, who looks after the city as a whole. Currently, the only person that does is the mayor. Uh, right now, we have uh, you know councilors that are predominantly focused on their on their wards. Of course, they they consider uh, you know broader issues, but it's not their primary focus. And so, uh, you know, clearly the mayor has that mandate and that, uh, that responsibility. So what tools does the mayor have to actually put it into effect? And right now, it's, it's the power of persuasion. And uh, you know what? I, I, I think I'm a, I can be a pretty persuasive guy, but it doesn't really give you the authority to actually follow through on something that, uh, you know, many people in the community have voted on. So I, I, I've said on a number of occasions a veto 
something that you would rarely ever use, but encourages people to come around to uh, to a, a compromise that uh, would allow things to move forward, is something that I think would be useful for a, for a mayor to have. You might might never use it, but the the the, the ability to have it and uh, the threat of it could the threat that that it could be used certainly uh, you know brings people together in a more uh, more proactive and collaborative way. So yeah, that was just one idea, uh, you know. Mayor Toronto gets to pick the committee chairs and gets to pick, uh, gets to set, uh, you know, some budget issues. And uh, they have some additional taxing authority. And, uh, you know, those are those are issues that, uh, you know, some that ought to be considered for, for mayors of, you know, in, in the rest of the province. Why, why just Toronto? Why not in Mississauga? Why not in Hamilton? And it may not be tools that uh, that the community at large wants to use. But, uh, you know, is there is there an opportunity to uh, to enact some of those? Uh, in in the broader province, just beyond Toronto. Yeah, listen. As I say, back in two thousand, that was a, a hotly contested item, and we were talking about retooling mm-hmm. the city. I, I think it's got some merit. Uh, of course, there's a protocol that have to be followed. Of course, we exist uh, due sure. to the City of Hamilton Act, and it would be the province that would have to say, "Okay, yeah, you guys can do that." And if you ever have a meeting with the premier, I know he's been talking about it for a while. He still haven't really had that official meeting yet. I think it's worth bringing up. And and again, as you say, not just for Hamilton, but for other major cities around Ontario. Yeah, and I think uh, the premier has used about that, and uh, I think there's uh, there's some merit on that. And this is not a this is not an attempt to create a power grab. It's really an attempt to be more reflective of what the electorate wants. And so, uh, you know, you can't deny that uh, that you know the only person that gets elected at large in our current system is the mayor. Uh, he has the broad mandate right across the board in all areas of the city. Uh, and if there, if, if that uh, that mandate is successful, then surely there's got to be some mechanism to follow through on it. That currently doesn't exist in any way, shape, or form. I've got one vote, just like the other 15 councillors have at uh, at the city of Hamilton, and I have no more authority or power to enact what the what the uh, the citizens have voted on in terms of my candidacy than uh, than anyone else does. So there's a there's a missing gap there. Now, other other tools that have been talked about is you know why not make all members of council at large, which also happens in different places, used to happen in Dundas, where everyone gets elected at large, and uh, and then they all have a collective responsibility of looking after the entire city, not just one specific ge- geographic area, or uh, the board of control. I mean, all, you know, that used to be in place, uh, as you recall, Bill, yep. uh, back in the day, that uh, had some effectiveness and, uh, you know, did require that uh, five uh, members were elected at large throughout the greater city, and they had executive powers that uh, the that the uh, the individual councillors and the individual wards didn't have. So, I mean, there's a number of mechanisms, but they're all geared towards not not putting power in the hands of one or two individuals. It's it's really geared towards having a better better response to what the electorate has actually voted on in the in, in the previous election. Look, I think it's a discussion worth having, and, and I'm glad yeah. it did come up yesterday because it puts that at least on people's minds anyway. Uh, I know you've got to get yeah. back into a meeting, Mr. Mayor. I appreciate you jumping in here for a few minutes today. Thanks so much for this. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank Take you. Take care. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, I want to get uh, Jason Farr into the uh, discussion here, too, the current counselor for uh, downtown Ward 2, uh, about some stuff that's going on at City Hall, specifically in his particular area. And we welcome Councillor Farr back to the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Jay. How are you doing today? I'm very good, and if ever I'm elected a councillor at large, I'm bringing a bike lane to your street in Ancaster, Bill. <laughs> I'm good with that. 
I'm, I'm fine with want. that. Uh, that that was obviously a rather contentious item when you asked staff to look into this idea about parking around bike lanes only in one small section. Right. Uh, you got a lot of pushback on this, I, and as expected, totally expected. I mean, for the most part, you're engaging with uh, those who are already sold on the idea, as I am, that uh, safe cycling infrastructure is great for any city. It uh, makes you more sustainable. It's providing for multimodal choices. It uh, brings economic development. There's a lot of positives. Uh, but for one constituent on that one block between Barton and Stewart, Giovanni Puzo, over uh, many years of engaging with him since the installation, a couple of years anyway, uh, not so much uh, a good feeling. And so, uh, you know, we just took the steps we would take for any resident as it results uh, in conversations that unfortunately lead to a divide. And he uh, exercised his right to not once but twice delegate uh, his issues, which essentially came down to his own idea of a hybrid solution, which was ultimately all that motion was about. Uh, a two-part motion that said, hey, Mr. Giovanni has an idea on off-peak hours. He wants to park on that block. Uh, staff report back on it, but don't uh, report back without consulting first with our own cycling committee, the Hamilton Cycling Committee, and uh, make sure that those uh, thoughts from that cycling committee are, are part of that report back. Well, that happened within four or five days, Bill, and uh, uh, not unexpectedly by anybody who follows uh, the cycling advocacy, the growing cycling advoca- advocacy in our city. Uh, it was an overwhelming no. It doesn't make any sense to reduce the, the, the safety factor of bike lanes. If anything, we should be heading in a different direction. And, and that ended that. It, it didn't last even a week. But uh, I think there's a few key messages here. And number one is, you know, all voices matter. And in this case, Mr. Giovanni, I think, knew he was up against it. But he wanted to exercise his opportunity to delegate to Public Works Committee. And he did that twice. So, and this closes the book on this, and, and, and just as we head into the nice weather, not today necessarily, but it is going to get nicer, we're told, and obviously there's going to be people out on that. So good on you for, for doing that, having the, the public process going through this, but uh, I think it ended the way everybody wanted to see it end, uh, except for maybe that individual. While yeah, I, I go, that, go ahead, go ahead. And I think as most probably expected, but I think we can safely say if, to, to CHML listeners today, if there's be any changes to the Bay Street bike lane, it'll be... To enhance safety, and it wouldn't be to reduce the infrastructure we have now. Now, very quickly, uh, and I know that you've got to be very guarded in what you say about this, but there's some concern, obviously, about what's going on with the old Sarkoa restaurant as we get into the nicer weather, and and as you move along with the development plans for that particular area uh, on a macro scale, uh, I know that the, there's some legalities involved here, uh, some negotiations, I think, that are going on behind the scenes. Are you confident this is going to get resolved soon? Uh, well, you know, I, I, what I can tell you is uh, what was reported last week. There had been a mediation. It was a couple of days. Uh, it may continue, Bill, and, and that's about as much as I can say. I mean, the reality is, and what I've said to you in the past, and I continue to feel is, uh, uh, you know, primarily on, as this case had, you know, been brought to us, we didn't go searching for a lawsuit uh, from day one. I felt, and I think I can speak for my fellow board members, that we felt very, very comfortable that everything we did as a, as a Waterfront Trust Board of Directors and as the sub-leaser of that particular facility was uh, above board and according to the lease. So to that end, I can tell you, we still feel very, very confident if mediation doesn't work out, if mediation continues, uh, and this ultimately goes to trial, we still feel 
very confident. It's confidence, maybe even more so uh, than when we first you and I talked about this a few years ago. Okay, but if this that that scenario develops, though, Jay, and and if for the, you guys are going to see the inside of a courtroom, I'm not suggesting it is, but if you go down that road, is this going to delay what's going to happen for the rest of that project? Well, the where the CPL motion has already been decided on. Yeah. So there was an attempt to uh, delay anything in terms of moving on that particular parcel, not just the building, but the large property that surrounds the building. And the judge said, uh, "No, uh, the city and and uh, uh, all of the staff involved can continue to move forward on on the plans as as it relates to that." And and ultimately, uh, you know, I, I, we were successful to that end. And the judge did say that if ultimately it's decided somewhere down the road in some prolonged, no doubt, court case that Sarkoa were to prevail, then that judge at that time may decide otherwise. But the reality is we, we were awarded our court costs for that CPL motion, and that was uh, already determined that we can continue to proceed on the plans. Yeah, because some of the, the feedback I've heard here is they were concerned about some of the, because this is an exciting project. I mean, what you want to do down in that whole general area uh, vis-a-vis redevelopment. And uh, we've had too many other major projects over the years here in Hamilton uh, get delayed through legal actions, and, and I, I would hate to see it happen there. So at least you've given us some clarity on that, and I appreciate that. And and again, well, I know it's, mind, it's Bill, a bit of a dance mind, here. There's still a, there's an LPAT appeal right now with Herman Turkstra and his group, and, and that could be, I'm hearing now, I asked for an update when I returned yesterday, and it's uh, looking like maybe the fall it'll reconvene. I don't have a lot of details, but there's still that one appellant in Herman Turkstra that uh, is, 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 we've settled other uh, issues with others, but uh, the reality is that, 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 that could mean a greater delay than the Sarkoa case. <sighs> well, that's the way we do business, I guess, in this community. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for this. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. That's uh, War 2 Councillor Jason Flyer, of course, giving us an update on a couple of different things that people have been asking us about here about the downtown area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The big news of the day is uh, from London, England. And no, it's not Brexit this time. It's uh, the arrest of uh, Julian Assange, who has been in hiding. Well, everybody knew where he was, but obviously uh, not uh, able to, to touch him. Uh, until today, anyway. Try to get some uh, clarity on what's going on here. We're pleased to welcome back to the program Jordan Donich, who is a criminal lawyer, of course, with uh, Donich Law. Jordan, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us again. Glad to be here. So many different angles to this thing that we could talk about, about uh, what happened and, and why this happened right now. Um, the fact that, of course, he's been in the Ecuadorian embassy for the last seven years, I guess, now. Uh, and it sounds as if uh, relations between uh, the embassy people and Mr. Assange broke down pretty quickly. That's right, and it looks like there were there were some form of cooperation uh, that we were not fully privy to that ultimately led to this situation where he's almost been uh, extradited from the embassy itself. Yeah, uh, the arrest made today. Of course, the police came in here. I, I just this is very briefly. This is uh, what the, the the new leader in Ecuador had said. Uh, today, I announced that the discourteous and aggressive behavior of Mr. Julian Assange. The hostile and threatening declarations of its allied organization against Ecuador, and especially the transgression of international treaties, has led the situation to a point where the asylum of Mr. Assange is unsustainable and no longer viable. Uh, that's what he put on Twitter that uh, President Moreno did just a little while ago, uh, which is which is obviously a much, a much broader statement. It doesn't get into specifics about this, but it, I get. Do you get the sense, Jordan, that this had been in the works for some time? Yeah, and that's obviously clear. But you have to ask ourselves why, right? Why is this even in the works if he's done, you know, possibly nothing wrong or he's legally seeking refuge? Um, and I think it's because governments don't like him, right? And, and, I, and I think that's, that's 
kind of scary when you, you can see governments using arguments of national security to perhaps orchestrate ways to get people into custody that are exposing the truth, arguably. And that's, I think, the scary part of all this. Well, exactly. Uh, as to why all of a sudden Ecuador would do this, and you have to ask yourself, where, from where did they get pressured to actually act in this fashion? And that's right. And what does this tell people, right, everyday people? Um, so forget about whether the conduct is right or wrong for a second here. Um, if you take a step back, it almost looks like, you know, you've got to be scared to expose the truth sometimes, um, however you do it. Um, because if you, if you are caught exposing the truth, or and governments don't like it, they'll find a way to detain you. Well, and therein lies the problem, and I don't know if it's necessarily a double standard, but it does send mixed messages, doesn't it? Uh, because uh, governments, uh, d- democratic governments, including ours here in Canada, uh, have at least talked the talk about uh, you know pr- uh, offering protection for whistleblowers and said, look, at if you see something that's wrong uh, and you bring it to somebody's attention, uh, you know that we, we want to make sure that we've got your back on this. And, and I guess that's the context which uh, Assange was working. And that look at he, uh, I know the government doesn't certainly like what he was doing, but he looked at it, I guess, as uh, he's he's a hero to some people for exposing what he thought were government inaccuracies and, and government malfeasance. And, and that's right. Who's the whistleblower for the government? Right? Who who's that? Right? We have the government makes us have all these processes to determine the truth. If you're charged criminally. As an individual in society, you have a trial, there's a prosecutor, they want to get to the truth, and they, you know, they want to make the victim whole, and they want to prosecute the offender. Um, and, and the same with corporations. If there's malfeasance, uh, there's programs to protect whistleblowers because we want to encourage uh, transparency. But what happens if we look above that, at, at the sphere of the government, um, and if people, and if the government is finding ways to aggressively apprehend whistleblowers, who, whoever they may be, um, it's almost as if the government's saying the rules don't apply to us somewhere, in some fashion. The uh, U.S., by the way, announced about an hour ago, for people that didn't hear it, uh, they have charged Assange officially. I mean, that was held under a, a court secrecy, I guess, until just a, about an hour and a half or so ago. Uh, the charge that I've seen here, uh, Jordan, is a conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. Uh, that's legalese for hacking, isn't it? Correct. So th- they will find ways, you know, essentially to prosecute him. But it's, is it really about that, or is it about the damage he's done with the exposure? Right? What's it about? Um, and, I, and I think we can all agree that governments don't like certain things getting out there, um, but they're okay with things getting out there for ordinary people facing prosecution. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's the content. I mean, you know, the, the co-conspirator in this whole thing, Chelsea Manning, of course, has already served time. Uh, for this, although there's some time, and there was I, I saw a story a couple of weeks ago that they're talking about reprosecuting some of that stuff too. So uh, they're being relentless about this. Uh, but it's interesting to see just just how intense the U.S. is going to be in this. Clearly, they want him back on U.S. soil. I would think, and that's to have control of them, and that's the reason. Uh, so the, we will see a, a, a variety of applications by foreign governments, as we saw with Kareem Baratov here, the hacker uh, in Canada. Uh, ultimately extradited to the U.S. for prosecution. Uh, They'll follow the same routes, quite likely, but it's scary if you think about it, because uh, really, what are they more concerned about? Are they concerned about the hacking and and that conduct, or or are they, you know, upset with what perhaps has been released um, and the content? And and if it's really the content, 
that that underlies all this prosecution, it really makes you question, you know, our, our framework sometimes as a society. Well, part of the anger, I guess, uh, well, it depends on the, in the, eye, the eye of the beholder, I would think, is, is how some of that information that Assange released uh, was actually used uh, for political purposes. And I, I, and, and obviously, you know, I, I, you don't know what was on in his head if he was just saying, look, I'm just going to put this out there. What they do with it is their own business. But he's certainly going to share some of the blame as, as far as some people are concerned anyway. That's right. I mean, it could be used one way or the other, but the point is it exists. That's the point. And the point is uh, its existence, I think, is that's what's con- what makes it controversial sometimes. How it's used, ultimately, well, I think nobody knows. But the fact that things exist that are, you know, uh, intended to be protected and, and, and in certain ways not exposed, I think, is what, what is controversial. So, Bottom line is this, Assange may be dealt with, but he's not the end. Uh, there will be somebody else It will continue, and it's going to be something the government's going to have to deal with long term. Uh, and it's just a question of time before this game happens again. Let's talk a little bit about process here. He's, uh, he's being held in a, in a, we're told, in a police station someplace in downtown London. Uh, the U.S. is clearly going to make a, an application here for extradition. I, I get the sense, Jordan, that's going to be a long, drawn-out process. Correct. So uh, there usually have to be a treaty partner. There's a whole legal test involved. But I mean, once he's in custody, it's quite likely uh, he will be extradited. We've seen that with El Chapo and all these other big names around the world, including Kareem Baratov here uh, locally in Ontario. Um, but but it, it, absolutely, that will happen. And there will be then a court application or perhaps a trial in the U.S. Uh, determining what his appropriate sentence should be and, and all those things. I'm, I'm always interested in perspective on this, and, and we just talked about clearly there's an awful lot of people that are upset with uh, with Assange because of what he did, uh, because of what many people are saying, the influence that, that hit the information that he, he released had on the on the last U.S. election, uh, and, and somebody's going to make him pay for that. That's going to be pretty obvious. But in the passage of time, uh, do we change our attitudes about people like this, the whistleblowers? Do they, do they, do they get elevated to the level of, of, a, of a hero, of a, a champion of the people? Well, it's like on one hand, society wants to encourage whistleblowing, right? Like that they want it. They want whistleblowers and they want to protect them. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's the government sometimes. They don't want a whistleblower, it seems like. Or, or it's not okay because it's treason or it's, you know, exposing, you know, secrets or it's subject to national security. There's other ways to uh, prevent the whistleblowing. So, I mean, it's hard to kind of have it both ways. Um, and and that's I think what will attract hackers and uh, and ultimately um, you know his successor. Um, so it, it won't go away. But, but uh, I'm thinking of Daniel Ellsberg, for instance. Uh, if people just say, yeah, "I know that name," that's the Pentagon Papers, which was uh, he was maybe one of the originals, and that that wasn't really necessarily hacking because he had boxes and boxes of documents that he actually had to copy because he didn't have the uh, the benefit of of the computer stuff that we have these days. But at, at the time, we were told, this, he's, this guy's a bad guy. This guy's he's a traitor to the country. Uh, and, and the government of the day down in the United States was, was just going after this guy relentlessly. But time has shown uh, now that we look at this and saw exactly what it was that he released and the information that he, he was showing us uh, exposed an awful lot of wrongdoing by the, the government of that day. Uh, and now he's looked upon as, as this this hero that, you know, boy, we, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today or we could have made some huge wrong steps uh, if we had not had Ellsberg releasing the Pentagon Papers uh, and, and the Washington Post publishing them, etc. So the, the, you're right, there seems to be a bit of a double standard here, doesn't there? 
That's right. And I mean, and it's going to come down to, you know, arguments for national security and, you know, privacy and secrecy uh, versus kind of public information and the truth. And I suppose as ordinary citizens, we have to trust our elected officials. That's what we do to be transparent and to allow them to keep secrets for national security. But they really have to be for national security, not just to perhaps not have information made public for the sake of it not being public. Yeah, but this is one of the things that I think rankles an awful lot of people uh, is is the the government can say what they want and they can hide what they want all under the guise of quote-unquote national security. And we don't know whether it is or it isn't. And that's why guys like Julian Assange exist. <laughs> that's their mission. That's their purpose is to perhaps, uh, you know, show that that framework is flawed. Um, and, that, and, you know, it comes down to really us trusting our elected officials. And then at the end of the day, who, you know, we have all these uh, kind of like levels of accountability, right? Like, for example, in, an, in a corporation, employees are held accountable by the managers. The managers are held accountable by the directors. The directors are held accountable by the board. And the CEO is held accountable by, accountable by the shareholders. Uh, so there's, there's a system there. But what about in government, right? I mean, ultimately, it's the public that holds them accountable. But we're, we hold them accountable because we have information. And if we don't have information, does it work? From what we know, does he have a defense? I mean, eventually this is going to go to trial. I can't even see them pleading out. I mean, they they may want actually a, tr- a show trial here so they can uh, publicly uh, expose some of the things and some of the, the and some of the concerns that they've got here. But I would think Assange would want his day in court as well to be able to tell his side of the story. He's going to have no choice but to run a trial because they're going to want excessive amount of incarceration, quite likely. So it's going to come down to that. Uh, it's not going to be like, okay, you know, do uh, one year in jail. He's already done whatever it is, six, seven years in jail, basically, in yeah. the embassy. So um, he'll have no choice but to run a trial because the amount of time that will be sought and custody, you know, could be for life. Uh, and uh, um, why wouldn't he run his trial? But but if, if you know, you, if they, you got the call today and said, George, look, you know, we want you to, to defend this guy, uh, is, is, is there a, a logical defense that you can use here? I mean, we've just talked about the fact that, you know, he's, he's exposing information that the public, he thought, had a right to know. I, I would imagine that, you know, in this case, uh, the state's argument is going to be, well, those were top secrets, and, and we go into the national security thing, and uh, there are some, obviously, that are suggesting he just did this frivolously. He didn't much care who saw it or what kind of damage they did. So it may come down to forensics, a lot of the arguments. Uh, how do they know it was him? Um, what information do they have connecting it directly to him? Could it be somebody else? Could he just be uh, kind of like the face of it? Um, so there could be a lot of technical arguments, uh, like we see in Internet crime. Um, so those would be certain types of arguments. Uh, I don't think the kind of defense lawyer going forward and saying, well, you know, he thought it was okay, or the public should know that subjective kind of what I thought. I don't think that's going to be a defense. It likely could come down to evidence and provability and ultimately the linking uh, directly, perhaps, uh, through uh, the hacking uh, way it was hacked. But i got to figure the U.S. government at this stage uh, is, is wanting to make this guy an example. Because uh, it's, it's this, is, this is really the new normal now. I mean, we hear about these hacking incidents going on all the time, corporately and, of course, through government now. Uh, and, and I think they probably want to use Assange to send an, a, a, a message to anybody who might even be considering this, that this is what's going to happen if we catch you. Quite likely, and it's uh, it's scary, right? I mean, we saw that again with Kareem Baratov here, extradited to the U.S. for hacking Yahoo accounts. Um, quite complicated, a lot of resources, but uh, there's still going to be a battle between 
kind of the vigilantes and, and the government. That won't go away, and the vigilantes will be willing to risk everything to expose the truth. That's uh, why they exist. And at the end of the day, we have to hope that as we vote our people into office, that we can trust them to be transparent and to make ethical decisions and the right decisions in national security, because obviously all those things need to exist for the right reasons. But there, there will always be people that feel the system is flawed, and they will be go, willing to go to any lengths to expose the truth. There's a, almost a folklore element to this, isn't there, Jordan? I mean, you know, Julian Assange is a bad It's like Robin Hood, you know. He's a good guy or he's a bad guy, depending on who you're talking to. And that's right. And he is the Robin Hood, I guess, of the day. And for everyone that thinks what he's done is illegal, which it probably is, and in black and white law, um, there's an equal amount of people that can see why uh, it may be justified. And uh, those people won't go away. And that's why, you know, there will there will be a successor. He is not the end of an era. Um, someone will always think the public needs to know something, and they will be willing to sacrifice themselves to do that. And that won't change. And, and ultimately, it comes down to a bigger key and lock, right? The government or whomever it is, the corporation, gets a, bit, a bigger lock, and somebody finds a way to get a bigger key, and then it goes back and forth. Well, uh, this is a lot more to come on this story in the weeks and probably even months, maybe even years ahead on this. Jordan, thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Jordan Donich, of course, a criminal lawyer with uh, Donich Law. And uh, we'll keep our eye on London. If any further developments there, we'll pass those on to you just as soon as we hear about them. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.